Good afternoon. It's uh, Monday the 4th of April 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, well, it's David Scott. Welcome to the programme, David. It's lovely to be in sunny Plymouth. Mm. Well, not too sunny Plymouth. Rainy, rainy Plymouth. And uh, joining everyone here at the Column Live. Uh, and we have uh, Katie Jo Murphan and Brian Gerrish, of course. Uh, well, Brian's joining us remotely from uh, somewhere not too far away, but... Uh... There we go. Uh, let's get straight on. And uh, we're heading to Ukraine, of course. And uh, well, the mail here. Uh, are the horrors in other Ukraine towns worse than Boka? Experts fear Russian troops have committed more massacres, uh, killed children and carried out mass rapes after 410 bodies were found as Europe's leaders demand international atrocities probe. Um, so we're now being told, David, that uh, the Russian troops, as they were leaving, uh, Kiev and uh, the surrounding towns and villages uh, were cutting the heads off uh, the locals, um, were burying them face down and these kinds of things, uh, and uh, video clips appearing with lots of uh, apparently dead bodies. So if we just put that back on screen again, you can see the images that the Daily Mail uh, was publishing. Um, before we move away from this article or from this uh, headline on the Mail uh, online, I just want to make the point, if you look at the top uh, of, of the screen there, uh, just to the right of the, or to the right of the logo. Uh, what does it say there, David? It says, Mail Force Ukraine Appeal. So if the Daily Mail is making an appeal or holding an appeal for Ukraine, uh, do they have any bias, do you think? Oh, there's clearly bias. But uh, of course, um, uh, in what is uh, a war zone, almost a civil war zone, with with uh, uh, a lot of uh, civilians uh, in the area, then we don't know whether this is real or not. Um, it's a pity we can't trust our own media more. This this is the point. So let's have a look. Here's what Boris had to say. He said Russia's despicable attacks against innocent civilians in Irpin and Boka are yet more evidence that Putin and his army are committing war crimes in Ukraine. No denial or disinformation from the Kremlin can hide what we all know uh, to be the truth. Putin is desperate, his invasion is failing, and Ukraine's resolve has never been stronger. I will do everything in my power to starve Putin's war machine. We are stepping up our sanctions and military support, as well as bolstering our humanitarian support package to help those in need on the ground. The UK has been at the forefront of supporting the International Criminal Court's investigation into atrocities committed in Ukraine, and the Justice Secretary has authorised additional financial support and the deployment of specialist investigators. We will not rest until justice is served. So that was Boris's uh, position uh, yesterday uh, and the BBC this morning. Uh, more evidence of civilian killings uh, emerge around Kiev. And, you know, the question in my mind here, David, is uh, if people have been killed, first of all, who was doing the killing? Uh, and second of all, have people been killed? Uh, now, I just want to put this article up and I do suggest that people have a look at this. This is from South Front. Now, of course, the Boris Johnson and the Daily Mail would say that South, South Front is a Kremlin mouthpiece, uh, but equally, it could be argued that the Daily Mail uh, is a mouthpiece for the other side, for the Ukrainian side, and the question is, what is actually going on here? So the headline is updated, AFU crimes in Boka, Kiev region, false flag propaganda attack against Russia revealed. Uh, and I'm not going to show the video uh, that was in this, but I do recommend that everybody goes and has a look at it if you wish. Um, because what the point that they're, they're making a, a number of points here, um, they show uh, one of the videos that has done the rounds across the mainstream press in the West. 
Uh, and one thing that appears to happen is that as the car drives past, because this video contains footage of cars driving past bodies lying in the road, apparently, as the car drives past one of the bodies uh, and they're panning across uh, with their camera, um, you can see in the uh, wing mirror at one point as one of the bodies appears to get up off the ground. Okay, so the question is, uh, was the footage staged? Now, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I don't know what's going on here, but there's clearly, uh, there are clearly questions to be asked about this. Yes, because it's been quite clear that, it's a, that the West sees this as a hybrid war. So it's a war not only on the ground with, with, with guns and bullets and artillery, but it's a war of ideas. It's a war of propaganda, of uh, uh, strategic uh, communication. And um, it's a war of the, that's fought as much in the press as it is in the ground. And we've seen, we've seen staged uh, massacres before. Uh, we've seen staged massacres in Syria. We've seen staged massacres for PR purposes that have been successful in getting, for example, Donald Trump to launch rocket attacks. Uh, into Syria, so we we know this goes on, and it makes it, it it's necessary to to treat all of these things with a degree of scepticism and looking for the evidence without going to the point of saying, well, um, I, I, we are going to be the the mirror image of the Daily Mail and only believe the other side, um, because horrible things happen in war. It's a horrible it's a horrible business, and uh, th there is always a possibility that people will overstep uh, what is viewed as, um, as the correct use of deadly force and into the illegal use of deadly force. And sometimes these, these lines can be very, very narrow and very difficult for the people involved uh, to, to recognize. Uh, so we have to, without dismissing these reports out of hand, exercise a considerable degree of skepticism. Yes, indeed. One of the other videos on the South Front page uh, was showing a group of uh, Ukrainian, well, what they describe as militants, so Ukrainian uh, Azov Brigade or similar uh, in Burka. Uh, and, uh, well, the civilians were apparently wearing uh, coloured armbands. Um, so, and the, the comment that was being made in the video was, uh, there are guys without, arm, without blue armbands, can I shoot at them? And the answer from the... Uh, uh, his superior was, yes, of course, sure. So, you know, <laughs> clearly some pretty unpleasant stuff going on, but the question is who is actually carrying out the atrocities. Brian, I, um, I'll bring you onto the programme at this point. I don't know if you've got any thoughts about uh, about what we've uh, just mentioned. Well, well, well for me, uh, Mike, it's just clear that we cannot trust a word that the British government says or the media outlets that the British government uh, controls. We know that they're prepared to use uh, deceit and propaganda in order to, to uh, progress the, the uh, British offensive aims. Um, and you, you've been very strong at uh, pointing out those offensive aims that we're at a perpetual state of war and the government is gonna prosecute this perpetual war using any means at its disposal. Uh, to me, it's it's very clear that all of the media outlets in UK have, to some extent, become propaganda outlets. And, uh, of course, we're not allowed to tune into other channels to see who else might be um, giving a different opinion. In a minute, I've got a, a little clip about uh, Russia today. 
So do we trust the British government and what it says? Do we trust the BBC? Do we trust what the press says? Uh, I don't think we can anymore because they're working to this um, largely hidden political agenda. Uh, well, um, David, just a, a second ago mentioned uh, the fact that, you know, we're seeing similar narratives in many cases to the types of things we've seen in Syria since uh, 2011. And uh, well, here's Liz Truss and what she was tweeting out this morning. Uh, Russia, sorry, yesterday, Russia is blocking life-saving humanitarian support from reaching Mariupol despite repeated promises not to. It must allow aid agencies access to reach those in vital need of support, whoever and wherever they are. Now, of course, on Friday's program, Patrick showed uh, an image uh, of uh, a, a Red Cross ambulance uh, with, uh, or a Red Cross van at least, with uh, armed Ukrainians getting out of it. Um, but this again is is similar to the type of narrative we had. You know, we could you could replace if we just put that back on screen for a second. We could replace Russia is still blocking with Syria is still or Assad is still blocking life saving humanitarian support from reaching. You know, East Aleppo, for example, it was exactly the same type of uh, of tweet that we were seeing at that time. Um, but let's uh, move on again with Liz Truss, because she was uh, speaking with Blinken yesterday. Uh, sorry, that was on Friday. And uh, about the situation in Ukraine, we agreed that pressure on Russia must continue and we will work to eliminate dependency on Russian energy. Uh, with our allies, we will continue to support Ukraine, she was saying, and uh, Blinken absolutely on the same page. What was interesting about this uh, this situation, uh, David, in uh, uh, in book in Booking was uh, it, took, it was four days from the date of the uh, of the Russian withdrawal um, until uh, this story started to break in the press, and so you do have to ask why it took so long. Why it took four days? Well, also. Uh... <laughs> Why would the Russians withdraw and leave evidence so blatantly in the streets? There is a tendency for people who are committing war crimes to try and cover up mm. uh, the facts because they realise that, that would, there will be people coming after them, there will be legal ramifications. It's not normal to leave um, a, 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 an abundance of evidence in the, in the open in that way. That just doesn't, doesn't strike me as, uh, as, as legitimate. Uh, Liz Truss was uh, in the press over the, uh, over the weekend, uh, and Saturday this was, in the sun. We cannot rest until Ukraine prevails and Vladimir Putin fails. Just the same uh, rhetoric that we've heard for the last uh, load of weeks, um, and uh, nothing really to report here other than more of the same. Um, but let's have a look at this. This is Newsweek. Uh, Poland, uh, sorry, NATO's Poland open to hosting U.S. nuclear weapons. Now, this is Newsweek's coverage of... Uh, I believe it was a German, I think it was, I can't remember which German uh, media outlet it was. Uh, but anyway, uh, this is uh, uh, Yaroslav uh, Kaczynski. Uh, he is the Deputy Prime Minister talking here. And let's just have a look at what they are quoting him as having said. The eastern flank must be much better protected in the future than before. Let's face it, the soldiers of the US nuclear power are the strongest stopping Russia from attacking NATO countries and providing us with the greatest security. Uh, he went on to say, if the Americans asked us to store American nuclear weapons in Poland, we would be open to it. Uh, in principle, however, it makes sense to extend nuclear weapons sharing to the eastern flank. What on earth would the Russians make of that? Uh, much the same as the Americans made of the plan to put nuclear weapons in Cuba in the 1950s, I'm afraid. They would view that as an existential threat and that would escalate uh, their aggressive intentions towards the eastern flank. 
uh, as it's described here, and presumably that means including, including the Baltic states. So uh, one thing we've got to understand about the Polish government uh, at the moment, this particular Polish government, is that they are rapidly anti-Russian. Uh, and why are they rapidly anti-Russian? Well, Jarosław Kaczynski, of course, is the deputy prime minister at the moment. His brother, Lech, was the uh, president uh, a number of years ago. Uh, and uh, well, let's just bring the Financial Times on here. This is from a couple of years ago, 10 years after the Smolensk air disaster, uh, political scars remain. Um, so uh, Lech uh, Kaczynski died on this aircraft along with uh, many other members of the Polish government. Uh, this was an air crash as the uh, Polish government was going to Smolensk to uh, uh, commemorate the uh, Katyn massacre. Um, and the plane crashed as it was attempting to land in uh, pretty foggy conditions. Uh, the Polish blamed the Russians for this. The Russians said, we told you not to try to land on, at, this air, at this airport because the weather conditions were against it. Uh, and uh, there certainly was quite a bit of uh, suggestion in the media at the time that uh, Lech Kaczynski had put pretty extreme pressure on the pilots of the, of the aircraft to, to make the landing. So, uh, but nonetheless, the, the, that particular regime in Poland has never forgiven the Russians uh, for that and uh, uh, much stronger views about Russia since then in the Polish government than perhaps you might otherwise have expected. Yes, and related to the Katyn massacre, obviously, is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is going to be a, a touch point uh, yes. for uh, Polish yes. uh, nationalism. Uh, but Brian, uh, you were talking a second ago about uh, the fact that it wasn't possible to, to get onto alternative voices. Uh, well, you and I had a, a short discussion about this um, earlier this morning, which was very helpful. I just discovered over the last couple of days that using DuckDuckGo, if I tried to see uh, Russia today to uh, get an alternative view on what was happening in Ukraine, remembering, of course, that Ofcom has banned free speech in UK. But previously, I could use uh, DuckDuckGo to get through and to see Russia Today's report. Uh, but when I tried, I got this particular message came up on my screen. Uh, if you hit the button again, that's right, it's come up so we can read it. It says 403 forbidden. That's an error. Client does not have access rights to the content. So server is rejecting to give proper response. That's all we know. Well, all I knew was that I could no longer easily get through to Russia today. Now, you suggested this is not necessarily a problem for DuckDuckGo, but something has clearly happened, which is making it more difficult to engage with Russia today. Oh. I'll just throw that back to you. Well, well, that's right. In this case, we can't uh, blame DuckDuckGo for that because uh, although uh, DuckDuckGo is, is downranking uh, any content which they view as being uh, anti-Ukrainian at the moment. Um, this definitely seems or looks from that screenshot to be a problem with RT itself. Now the question is, was that a problem with RT servers or uh, was it a problem with your internet service provider? So, so you know, th there is, uh, there are hints that, uh, that you know, there are blocks appearing uh, between us as individuals and the, the destinations uh, on the internet. So. So that's that's a, a, an interesting one to keep an eye on. Um, but what, what okay. was it you were looking for on on RT? Well, yeah, let's follow it through. Follow it through because I was looking for a particular report that I'd been told about, which was called "Western Media Clubs Together to Whitewash Ukrainian Neo Nazis." And uh, what is very interesting about this uh, 
article is that it is so well written. It clearly makes sense. It's evidence based. If you hit the key again, we should expand part of the screen. There we are. And so uh, what I discovered, amongst other things in this article, is the uh, completely factual sources. So they're talking about Azov members being right wing extremists, being now supplied with British uh, anti-tank rockets. Uh, but at the bottom of the screen there, it says contrast this um, uh, to the uh, coverage Azov got in the West before 2022. Back in January 2021, Time magazine called them a militia. A, a militia. So Ofcom does not want people to read what Russia Today says, but apparently they don't want people to read what Time said. So if we move on to the uh, next image, here is the Time article that the Russians refer to. Uh, what's the headline? Like share recruit, how a white supremacist militia uses Facebook to radicalize and train new members. So uh, that's pretty straightforward. And I just took a couple of quotes, which we can move on to. Uh, so this is the start of it. They're talking about a gentleman called Fuller, who's apparently an ex-US Navy veteran, and he'd gone out to Ukraine. Now, remember, we're talking a little while ago, but it said when they finally rendezvoused Fuller, noticed the swastika tattoo on the middle finger of Fernholm's left hand. It didn't surprise him. The crew had made no secrets of his neo-Nazi politics. Within the global network of far-right extremists, he served as a point of contact to the Azov movement, the Ukrainian military group that has trained and inspired white supremacists from around the world and which Fuller had come to join. Now, remember, this is not Russia Today saying this. Uh, this is the Time, uh, Time magazine itself. Let's go for the second quote. Um, but Azov is much more than a malicious a militia. It has its own political party, two publishing houses, summer camps for children, vigilante force known as the National Militia, which patrols the streets of Ukraine cities alongside the police. Unlike its ideological peers in the US and Europe, it also has a military wing with at least two training bases and a vast arsenal of weapons from drones and armoured vehicles to artillery pieces. This is Time magazine telling us factually what the problem is with the Azov battalion. And if we go to the last quote here, uh, outside Ukraine, Azov occupies a central role in a network of extremist groups stretching from California across Europe to New Zealand, according to law enforcement officials on three continents. So it's not just Time magazine. We've got law enforcement people who know how dangerous these people. It goes on to say it acts as a magnet for young men eager for combat experience. Ali Sufan, a security cult, uh, consultant and former FBI agent, who has studied Azov estimates that more than 17,000 foreign fighters have come to Ukraine over the past six years from 50 countries. Now, I'm going to suggest to our audience today that we need to be reading these sorts of reports, whether they come from Russia Today or American Time magazine, because they're telling us some really important detail about who's really fighting in, in Ukraine. But of course, Ofcom has now been set up as the censor to deny us. So I'm not sure what your thoughts are about this, but I think that we're in dangerous times when we can't hear in UK what other people say. Uh, well, the first observation I have there, Brian, is, of course, they're talking about 17,000 foreign fighters coming to Ukraine over the past six years. Uh, admittedly, this uh, 
article is a couple of years old, so, so it's going to be uh, eight years, let's say. But what were they going for? Uh, because apparently uh, there was nothing going on in Ukraine since 2014, was there? So wh wh who, what were these 17,000 foreign fighters going to do, David? Well, this is, this is the thing. The, the, the narrative from the West is there's nothing to see, uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing to worry about. The narrative from Russia was there was an ongoing war of uh, perhaps genocidal nature or perhaps um, to, to uh, cleanse the area of Russian speakers in the Donbass. And if there's 17,000 fighters visiting over that sort of period, that, that's, enough, that's enough to sustain uh, that sort of campaign uh, very substantially. Yes. Um, so, Brian, uh, that brings us to BBC Media Action. Well, I've, I've got a segment here which I'll do very quickly. I know we've got a lot to cover in the news, so I'll try and be as, uh, as quick on this as I can. But it's factual. People can freeze the screen. Look at it. Let's remind ourselves that BBC Charity, BBC Media Action, has been very active in Ukraine, helping uh, the Ukrainian government set up its own new transformed media system. So if BBC is running Ukrainian media, it's a, it's a key partner, it's bringing in funding, we can't trust the BBC to be independent. So uh, another click, I've shown this before, but I just want to make sure that people can see that the uh, media action itself talks about the fact it's working with the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, Global Affairs Canada, Bill and Melinda Gates. And in fact, if you go back, the state, US State Department is in there as well. This isn't a charity, it's a political body. And if we just bring up the next one on, on screen, um, and if you hit the key, uh, what, what should come up is that uh, this is very much, there we are, this is very much um, part of the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. There's a list on the right-hand side that we've shown before of all the agencies, well, the agency, Wilton Park and others, uh, who are working with the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office. But surprisingly, BBC Media Action doesn't keep, get a mention. And I'm pretty confident that that is so that they can continue to do their dirty work unseen from the wider British public. But let's move on to the next one, because we also flagged up that executive agency, which was Wilton Park. And here was the Foreign and Commonwealth Office um, uh, promoting Ms. Gisela Stewart as the new chair. And we pointed out that, uh, of course, she's got some very interesting other commitments, such as chair of Ch or was chair, chair of Change Britain, but also director of Henry Jackson Society and member of the Global Strategy Forum Board. And uh, so we, we say to ourselves, what exactly is the allegiance of this lady? But a uh, key issue, which I really wanted to bring to people's attention, is if we're dealing with a Foreign and Commonwealth Office, um, then what are we looking at? So on screen, you've got an image of the executive agency, Wilton Park. And uh, if you press the button again, we should call up a bit more information. I think there we go. It says, as part of the FCDO, we support British foreign policy priorities and our core core to the UK's public diplomacy work. The networks we build and nurture create a lasting sense of connection to both Wilton Park and the UK. And then they list some other key areas, conflict prevention, defence security, 
global economy, health, human rights, multilateral institutions and sustainable development. So who are these people? It's not very clear because you don't know whether you're dealing with an agency or you're dealing with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office itself. Let's just look at this very short uh, video clip where Wilton Park is promoting itself. Dialogue is key to international diplomacy. Sharing experience and expertise helps us to nurture relationships across regional, political, religious and cultural divides. Wilton Park is roundtable discussions where every voice is heard. A safe environment for welcome dialogue. A neutral setting for heated debate. Focus on inclusive themes in exclusive locations. Intimate settings for in-depth conversations. Facilitated discussions which broaden perceptions. International participants with local expertise. Difficult subjects addressed in comfortable surroundings. A unique expert network promoting diversity of opinion and collaboration and partnerships worldwide. Diplomacy develops and strengthens mutual understanding. We progress as a people by reaching resolution through compromise and advancing policy through knowledge. Wilton Park has provided a home for global diplomacy for over 70 years. So just very quickly, if I may, uh, for you two, uh, what are we dealing with here? Is this an official part of the British government or is this a special club which is actually forming the policy? I, I think it's the latter. Let's just have a look, little look at more of their material to make sure we can understand them. So we've got this one here, Wilton Park, Our Values. Uh, now they're saying once again that they're working as an executive agency of the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, but they are the only agency that's listed on the government's page. But they're boasting they promote peace, wealth and fairness in the world with beautiful surroundings. They don't say good food, etc. But of course, that's the whole image. And um, uh, can we trust them? Well, if we have a look at defence and security, um, people can read all this on their website themselves. You'll see that, well, they're heavily into all matters to do with defence and, and security. They're partnering with Canada, Germany, Netherlands, Norway, Switzerland, the US. And apparently we're going to trust them because they're helping to form policy. But of course, none of this is debated in Westminster itself. And uh, if you have a look at other agencies they're involved with on the next slide here, uh, we can see that Wilton Park is saying part of our team is the USA Foundation. And it says the foundation is chaired by a gentleman called Tom Woods. And uh, we can call him up on the screen. Uh, here's uh, Woods International LLC. And what did I notice very quickly that the, the main man, Tom Woods, is chairman of the Global Steering Committee for Quality Assurance, hosted by the World Bank. And uh, he's very big in all matters to do with corporate interests. He's also operated at extremely high level with the US government. So who is Wilton Park? Who is Wilton Park? What are they really promoting here? Are we dealing with a political agenda or are we dealing with uh, are we dealing with commercial interests and World Bank uh, level commitment? 
Um, the next slide shows him uh, so people can actually see this man. And uh, here he is. He, he concentrates international efforts to combat falsified medicines around the world. Uh, but he's also building transatlantic partnerships. Well, my question is, who is this man? And we should remember that uh, when we followed Gazella Stewart through, uh, we found her involved with another organization called Global Strategy Forum, which uh, is in the next slide, just for people to uh, see. And we pointed out that with uh, Global Strategy, we had a mix of, of uh, very senior retired British military alongside the Rothschild banking interests. So the question remains, what is this organization? And the icing on the cake is the fact that recently or fairly recently, an all party parliamentary group was set up, founded in May 2021. And it says the purpose of the Wilton Park uh, group is for parliamentarians to learn more about and better understand and support Wilton Park. So it appears that our own MPs do not understand what this organisation is doing. So where does the power lie? Does the power lie with the MPs or does the power lie with Wilton Park? And if I, I just take us through uh, the remaining uh, slides on this particular issue. Uh, these are the minutes from the meeting of that inaugural uh, minute of the parliamentary group uh, where we can see some of the names. Uh, but very quickly, you find in any other business. Um, no, uh, Mike, if you just move on to the next to the next one, uh, the next slide. There we are. Uh, any other business. And what do we find? We find this statement. Vice Chair Theo Clark MP proposed a joint event between Wilton Park and the All Parliamentary Group on the UK's soft power. So now we've really got down to what this organisation is. This is a power base outside of the British government, and it appears to be driving the MPs rather than the other way around. So I decided uh, this morning that I'd ask a question of Wilton Park. And in the uh, next uh, image, um, this is just the email that we sent to Wilton Park, asking them what their effort, what efforts they were making uh, to promote peace in Ukraine, particularly in limiting supplies of arms. And we're also asking them for um, links to documentary evidence showing that Wilton, showing how Wilton Park has previously worked to avoid conflict in Ukraine. But I'll end the segment there with really a question for our audience, which is who is actually running foreign policy? Is it being run by politicians who appear to need briefs from Wilton Park? Or is it Wilton Park itself that is running an agenda largely out of sight of the British public. Um, a number of years ago, you coined this term government of occupation. Yes, government of occupation um, was, you had the appearance of a government, but in fact, it was um, essentially foreign. It was disinterested in the, in the interests of the people. It was operating at a completely different agenda and it was completely opaque. And it was dangerous in that anyone who appealed to it uh, against some sort of injustice, for example, could find themselves in a lot of trouble. Mm. Um, and the more they appealed, the more trouble they would get in. Uh, and I, to, in order to protect people from making these mistakes, I was explaining, look, treat it like a government of, of occupation, treat it like an occupying power. 
and be very careful how you deal with it. Uh, there's a fascinating piece from Brian there. What we're seeing is uh, there's no transparency. Um, policy, international policy, British foreign policy has been made by an organization that's one step removed from the government. There's no transparency and there's no oversight. And the MPs who should be conducting that oversight are in fact uh, supporting learning and understanding, but not checking, not reviewing, not criticizing, not asking hard questions. That doesn't seem to be part of the agenda at all. Right. So that wouldn't necessarily be the part of an agenda for an all-party par par uh, parliamentary group, but it certainly would be uh, a, the agenda for a select committee. And um, I'm not seeing any evidence of any of the major select committees uh, actually trying to take the lid off any of this stuff. Yes. And, and this, this comes down to the question, who makes the policy? Right? Who, what do these people believe, and what are the policies that are being discussed? We can't see any of it, and Parliament can't see any of it. Right. Okay, well, let's move on. Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, and if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, and that would be very much appreciated. You could also uh, pick up something from the shop. Uh, and that's at shop.ukcolumn.org. Uh, and uh, you could share our material that you find on the various platforms. That would be much appreciated as well. Um, so that brings us on then uh, to the Tea House Theatre. Uh, Peter Ford, former ambassador, Syria Bahrain. Yes, I just wanted to put this up because a lot of good work has been done by the group around the Tea House Theatre, and they'd like to. Uh, uh, make sure that people know that Thursday the 14th of April, 7 till 10 in the evening, Peter Ford is going to be one of their speakers. So we're delighted to give some support because this is proper free speech. And if we can't rely on the BBC or any of the other uh, national newspapers to get free speech out, then the Tea House Theatre Group are doing it. So well done to them. Okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, David, let's uh, move on to COVID issues then. Yes, so for um, two years now, we've seen uh, amongst the worst places where uh, liberty has been eliminated uh, and uh, the people have been oppressed by the COVID regulations has been Australia and has been, uh, apart, apart from one or two noticeable exceptions, very few people speaking out about, about this. Well, we've got some video here to show that there is resistance in Australia. There are people asking the right questions. This is Senator uh, Malcolm Roberts uh, of, the, of the Australian Parliament. Uh, we've got three clips. The first one outlines the nature of his concerns and why he's starting to ask hard questions. Speaking to this parliament's therapeutic response to COVID-19 and its horrific medical harm and loss of life in that response. Last week, Leading Australian parliamentarians came together in an event I organised called COVID Under Question to present documented evidence and victim testimony proving a catastrophic failure of Australia's regulatory framework. COVID vaccine injuries are hidden behind anonymous government data, while COVID virus supposed harm is splashed across prime time. The very least we can do for the victims of COVID vaccines is to say their names. Victims like Caitlin George Georgia Gotts, a healthy and vibrant 23-year-old studying at Griffith University to become a vet while working as a horse strapper. Caitlin dropped dead at work of a heart attack following his second Pfizer shot. Her death was recorded as asthma. 
a condition Caitlin has never had. So he's correctly identifying, essentially he's correctly identifying the key issues. It's horrific harm, a massive loss of life, and a craven cover-up that's been seen through, uh, the, through the press and through the parliaments uh, of all of our countries. Uh, in this, this second clip, uh, he goes on to explore some of the, the, the detail of what has been underpinning this and driving the deception forward. The decision to ban proven, safe, affordable, accessible alternative treatments that are working around the world was taken to ensure the fastest and widest possible adoption of the vaccines. The TGA's own customers fund the TGA. That means pharmaceutical companies fund their own products approval. That fails the pub test. Where are the checks and balances? There are none. The Australian Bureau of Statistics is culpable in this scandal and cover-up. The Australian Bureau of Statistics annual budget is $400 million. And the most recent mortality data they provide is November last year, four months behind. The most recent breakdown of mortality by cause and age is 2020. The most recent data on live births is 2020. Birth data used to be available six weeks after, not 15 months and counting, hiding miscarriages. So, Good question. Well, excellent question. And, and the, the core here is there are no checks and balances. Uh, the, the regulators have been corrupted by their association with Big Pharma and the checks and balances are completely missing, just as they are in the development of foreign policy in Britain. And can I just say, if, if people didn't see Wednesday's programme last week, uh, when Debbie was talking about uh, similar issues uh, and showing uh, a little clip from, of, from the board meeting of the NHS uh, and uh, June Rain talking about the MHRA being an enabler, not a regulator, an enabler, an enabler for the new uh, life sciences industry, which is booming as a result of, of COVID and the 100 days policy. And that's, that's pretty much what he's saying as well. Yes, let's not worry about all the harm and, and the people whose lives have been ended or, or um, completely transformed by this. There's money to be made and uh, they're, they're going to encourage that money to be made and fail in all of their duties as a result. Now, in this, this last clip, uh, Senator Roberts goes on to say what his response and those who support him uh, is to this, this crisis and this failure. The truth is the Select Committee on COVID-19 has been running a protection racket for the pharmaceutical industry, and today's vote proves that. This unprecedented betrayal of the Australian people must be referred immediately to the Royal Commission, to a Royal Commission, to the Prime Minister, the Health Minister, the, Fed, the Federal Health Department and all those in the Senate and the House of Representatives, all of you who have perpetrated this crime, I direct one question. How the hell do you expect to get away with it? We're not going to let you get away with it. We won't let you get away with it. We are coming for you. We have the stamina to hound you down, and we damn well will. Hold on. Sorry. So while you've got people of, uh, of the stature and determination of Senator Roberts, um, we will see uh, the COVID story move on to its next phase, which is the cover-up and uh, the search for truth regarding how many lives were killed, how many lives were ended, how many people were maimed and injured and who covered it up 
and what they knew and when they knew it. And uh, this story, this part of the story, is going to run and run because essentially I think the wrongdoing here is so egregious, so serious, so uh, all-encompassing. It covers uh, the entire regulatory state across the entire Western world uh, that to for the truth to be revealed uh, will mean that the nature of the government that we have would need to change. So uh, there will be enormous resistance against any of that truth being revealed. But you see there in that man and in, in one or two notable individuals in our own parliaments and elsewhere, uh, people who have the courage to speak out on this and who are determined to do so. Uh, well, Brian, one notable individual in our own parliament that is speaking out on this is Christopher Chope. Uh, yes, and we've got an extraordinary video clip of him speaking. It speaks for itself as the way he is treated. Um, compare it to, to uh, what the um, Australian senator was saying. Let's have a look at this Westminster clip of what happens when you speak out about vaccines. Mr Speaker, does my right honourable friend accept that there is another NHS treatment disaster in the making? in the fact that there may be 10,000 or more people who have suffered serious injury or even death as a result of adverse reactions to the COVID-19 vaccinations. And that can he give us assurance that the, there will be justice for these people uh, immediately rather than having to wait for decades? Very weak link. And Sir Christopher's normally better than that. I think that's a poor effort from him. So uh, utterly disgraceful, I think, the way that he, he was treated. He's talking about very serious things. And uh, if we can just bring up the next uh, slide on screen here, this is how The Independent reported it. A Tory MP has been called an anti-science extremist and accused of trumpeting a discredited conspiracy theory over claims on COVID vaccines made to Parliament. Sir Christopher Chope has been shut down by MPs, campaigners and experts over comments made on Thursday, which were branded ridiculous and offensive. Well, ridiculous and offensive, uh, those are um, descriptors we should be applying to the independent. It is outrageous that, a, that an MP should stand up and warn about injuries to people and the Speaker of the House effectively ridicules him. Was I wrong in in thinking that that was uh, what the Speaker was attempting to do there? Well, no, you're absolutely right. That is what the Speaker was attempting to do. Uh, and, uh, well, he is, it seems, pretty much a lone voice at the moment. And uh, he probably needs quite a bit of support, Brian. So maybe uh, we should be asking uh, people or suggesting to people that they might like to offer that support. Well, we've said this before with other people, uh, the very brave policeman Mike Veal, when he was trying to investigate high-level child abuse, of course, had virtually no support. So we suggested people needed to get in contact. But really, Sir Christopher Chope should have hundreds of thousands of emails coming in, uh, giving him support for what he's doing. We're talking about injury and death to individuals caused by the vaccines, and yes, at the moment, the MHRA, which is fully in bed with the pharmaceutical industry, is simply refusing to carry out any risk analysis into the deaths and serious injuries from vaccines. It is truly outrageous. 
Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's move on to this then. And uh, well, we've got the EU uh, a few days ago saying an international treaty on pandemic pre uh, prevention and preparedness. The latest news is that the Council, the European Council, has given the green light to start negotiations on this international pandemic uh, treaty. So uh, this is quite a significant development. We've talked about it a couple of times on the UK column news. And of course, if you were watching the uh, last Doctors for COVID Ethics. Uh, symposium. This issue was covered as well. Um, one of our viewers decided to write to his MP uh, about this. So let's put the response on screen. Um, here it is. Uh, the name is redacted, but let's uh, let's zoom in and see what he says. Uh, Thank you for contacting me, contacting me about a potential new international treaty for pandemic preparedness. The COVID-19 pandemic has been one of the uh, greatest challenges to the established international order since the Second World War a global threat that has required global solutions born out of global cooperation. It has been immensely heartening to have seen all the peoples and nations of the world pull together as they have. I pay tribute to all everywhere. As in the late 1940s, uh, where to avert a repeat of the cataclysm of total war, world leaders came together to establish the multilateral system we have today. I think it's reasonably fair to argue that a similar effort is required on the part of world leaders to strengthen preparedness for and in response to potential future pandemics. Um, as such, I welcome the suggestion of the Prime Minister writing with other world leaders last year that the international community should commit to producing a new international treaty for pandemic preparedness and response. I'm told that such a treaty would aim to foster greatly enhanced cooperation in future pandemics uh, by further embedding the principles of shared responsibility and transparency into the multilateral system and through material improvements in global alert systems, data sharing, research, production, and distribution of medical technologies such as vaccines. Discussions are ongoing at the World Health Organization to this end. I know that the UK government will engage with any such proposals, including at the World Health Assembly in May, with a view to a final outcome that learns the lessons of COVID-19. Thank you again for taking the time to contact me. Yours sincerely, Aaron Bell, MP, Conservative Member of Parliament for Newcastle under Lyme. So, uh, David, that very clearly demonstrates that the role of the MP is no longer to represent the views of the public in Parliament, but to re uh, represent the views of uh, global government uh, institutions uh, to their to the, constituents. To the constituents, yes, yes. This is this is a, this is running PR coverage uh, for global interests, and he talks about the lessons of COVID. Right now, the lessons of COVID have been that if you look at the statistics the pandemic really didn't happen. If you look at all-cause mortality, it barely registered. And then if you look at more detailed statistics, you can see uh, the very dramatic response in all-cause mortality to every wave of vaccination. But those are not the lessons he's looking to learn because he is, one would assume, utterly ignorant of what the statistics actually show, mm. of what the data actually shows. He's, he's taking the narrative and trumpeting the narrative as though it were fact. Such has been the success of the PR campaign that's accompanied COVID um, uh, throughout the last two years uh, on those who are unwilling or unable to question. Uh, I'm quite certain he is probably one of the critics of Christopher Chope as well. But let's move on to Sajid Javid here. Here he is on screen. Uh, what's he got to say? We must break the link between background and prospects for a healthy life. Uh, and I'm determined to level up the health of the nation and tackle its disparities. So what background is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the black and ethnic 
minorities. Uh, and uh, so let's see what else he said. People from black and Asian communities, older people and people who have limited access to the outdoors are more likely to have lower levels of vitamin D. Uh, I've launched this call for evidence to identify innovative ways uh, we can encourage people to increase their vitamin D intake and help people live longer, healthier uh, and healthier lives. So what has been launched is a review uh, into vitamin D intake to help tackle health disparities. Uh, it will, uh, so they say around one in six adults and almost 20% of children in the UK have vitamin D levels lower than government recommendations. Older people, the housebound, and people from black and South Asian communities are more likely to have lower levels of the vital vitamin. Uh, this call for evidence, which is launched today by the, Home for, uh, by the Office for Health Improvement uh, and Disparities, will kickstart a national campaign to raise awareness of the importance of vitamin D and gather news, uh, gather views from public, public health uh, experts, retailers, food manufacturers, and so on, with a view to uh, publicly medicating or medicating the general public. Uh, and this is another example of mass medication of the general public if they decide to go ahead with it. Uh, so I'll just remind everybody that there's another mass medication uh, progress uh, as Kitty Joe has been talking about in her most recent appearances and that's water fluoridation on a much broader scale than it is at the moment. But the other one that we should uh, remember that was implemented a couple of months ago uh, or several months ago was folic acid being added to flour to present spinal conditions to prevent spinal conditions in babies. And David, the thing about this for me is that what we have is we have minority or a small group of people within the country that might have a problem. And so to solve that problem for those uh, that minority of people, they are medicating the entire population. So folic acid was the first. Well, you know, fluoridation, okay, that's been going on in some areas for quite some time, but that's going to be a national thing. And now we're talking about vitamin D as well. How far are we going to let this go before we say, hold on a second, should we not be encouraging the specific minorities to take the specific action that they need to deal with the specific, specific problems that they have, rather than this blanket approach to so-called public health? And if bread and water contain new medicine, what happened to informed consent? Correct. So, uh, uh, Brian, any thoughts on that? You're, you're muted. Uh, there we are. Uh, apologies for that. You've said it all, really. The, the government is simply saying that the wider public, men and women, adult men and women, are children. We're unable to think for ourselves. We can't make any decisions for ourselves. We cannot decide what's good for us to eat or drink. The government is going to make all the decisions. And the, the letter from the MP, if I can just come back to that, just said to me that man will be utterly ignorant of what is really being formed at a geopolitical level for global government, which tells us how we can live our lives at each and every level. And that includes our health and what we eat and drink. This is very, very dangerous global policy coming in, and uh, it's, it's just being dumped onto the public. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that, Brian. Now, let's uh, welcome Kitty Joe back to the program. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since you've been on, but uh, you've got an update for us uh, on Canada. I have. Thank you, Mike. In uh, Canada, investigations are still going on, and they are still trying their best to get something on the Freedom Convoy and their supporters. Uh, but they're failing miserably because you can't make a lie true. 
they are desperately trying to justify the police's disgusting behavior, basically. And one allegation being that the truckers had loaded shotguns in their trucks. Well, according to Steve Bell, Ottawa's interim chief of police, throughout the protest, they received information and intelligence around weapons and possessions of weapons by people that had either attended or intended on, on attending the uh, occupation. But Bell has admitted that no loaded firearms were seized during the crackdown on the Freedom Convoy last month. During a Commons Public Safety Committee, Conservative MP Dane Lloyd asked Bell the question, in Ottawa, during the protest clearing operation, were any loaded shotguns found in the trucks of protesting? A simple enough question with a simple enough answer. You would think, no, is the answer, that's it. But Lloyd, had to ask Bell three times, I have a slide there, uh, three times for a simple yes uh, or no in the one and a half minute uh, conversation they had because Bell just kept referring back to the fact that there are still investigations that continue in relations to weapons uh, possessions at the occupation. Uh, you know what, Bell, you didn't find any because there weren't any. The Freedom Convoy was a protest full of love and peace. Uh, but they are finding in Canada, as we are here in Great Britain and all over the world, that our laws that are supposed to be protecting us from tyranny just aren't working. Um, in Canada, their constitutional rights completely failed them um, and completely failed to stop Trudeau from being able to evoke the Emergencies Act and freeze people's, uh, innocent people's um, assets and um, their bank accounts. Um, Canada is frighteningly becoming Chinified. Uh, in China, just to simply challenge or question the government, uh, their decisions, uh, their policies, you'll often find yourself in prison. And that's happening in Canada right now. 64-year-old uh, um, Ontario MPP, Randy Hillier, is facing nine charges over his involvement in the Freedom Convoy. Hillier says differing and dissenting views are now apparently criminal, so that's a disturbing trend. Isn't it just? Hillier is an independent, uh, we've got the slide there, is it on the screen? Uh, Hillier said he has had thousands of interactions with people and has no idea what has led to the charges of assault. Um, he's uh, of a peace or public officer. I only ever greeted people with love and affection and embrace and handshakes. So unless handshakes and warm embraces are now considered assault, I have no idea. Um, a pastor, Arthur Pulowski has committed no crime and yet is still being held in prison. Pulowski gave a sermon to truckers uh, blockading the highway back in February, telling them peacefully to hold the line. His son Nathaniel is speaking out for his father and has called Alberta's uh, premier a liar. He said Jason Kenney's justification for why Nathaniel's father has been locked up for more than a month is completely false and in fact misinformation. Uh, Kelly claimed that he understands it, uh, as he understands it, Pulowski has been detained by the police because of multiple breaches of terms of release court date, court orders, as well as an incitement to violence uh, at the court border crossing blockade. I think, Katie, um, some, some good news on that. I think I spotted this morning uh, that Pastor Ooh. Pulowski has in fact been released. Uh, but, oh, that he, but that he had spent uh, at least three weeks in solitary confinement. Uh, oh, which, absolutely. I was just which, about to go which on to say that. Yeah. Would be uh, a form of torture, of course. Mm -hmm. But I think he's now breathing the uh, 
uh, Chinified, but uh, still somewhat free air of Canada uh, today. Oh, that's fabulous news. That is fabulous news. I was just about to go on to say, um, if we've got the slide there, um, yeah, he, he's been in solitary confinement. Um, he's, yeah, he's not had the representation he should have had. It's been, it's been horrific for him. So uh, that's wonderful. I mean, they have had um, uh, um, uh, some, um, what they had uh, uh, signatures, I think 50,000 signatures they needed, and they had a donation where you could donate to help with legal fees. So that must have, uh, that must have happened, which is fantastic news. Um, but the craziness in Canada just carries on. Um, I mean, the latest being the fact that if you have COVID but are vaccinated, you can travel without any restrictions. Um, if you don't have COVID but are unvaccinated, <laughs> you are still a prisoner in your own country. Um, I, I, can anybody make sense of that to me? Because I just I can't get my head around that. Um, and just to top things off, um, MPs, ministers, Trudeau himself are benefiting from thousands of dollars in pay rises on the very same day as carbon taxes increased and as inflation hits the Canadian citizens. Um, so it, it's, it's pretty dire out there still. And um, yeah, we've got to keep, keep supporting them. But that's fantastic that uh, pa Pastor Pulowski has been uh, freed. Absolutely fantastic. Okay, well, uh, let's move on, Katie Joe, then to uh, homeschooling. And uh, well, uh, as by way of an introduction, um, well, a Daily Mail article here. I think this was from January, uh, with your good self on the front. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the very first time I was on UK column, um, the Sunday before, there had been an article um, which I had appeared in about how millions are following anti-vaxxers' lies, and in the same edition. Uh, they'd published an article about the Alpha Men Assemble. Uh, there he is, Danny Glass, an absolute legend, um, that man is. Uh, but obviously the Daily Mail, as you can see, portrayed them as sinister and dangerous. Um, they had an undercover reporter join in a training session they were running in Staffordshire Park. Um, and then they found the connection between Hope Sussex and the Alpha Men Assemble and printed another article, uh, which I, I think I have there. Um, it, it basically says that a home education group advocating the benefits of children learning through nature is being promoted by hardline anti-vaxxers. Hope Sussex, based in Horsham, claims it provides a humane and natural setting for our children through activities such as foraging and nature study. But the male can reveal it is being promoted by the military anti-vax group Alpha Men Assemble as a way children can avoid state indoctrination. We don't want that now, do we? Children avoiding state indoctrination. We definitely don't want that. So Alpha Men is uh, running combat training for recruits as they prepare to take on schools, vaccination centres. It has promised funds raised from the sale of its merchandise will go towards Hope, whose tutors include uh, mem uh, BMP members. The hardcore activists are far cry from gentle, nature-loving outlook uh, of Hope we Hope's website. One of its tutors, Katie J. Murphin, uh, 40 is former West End uh, stage performer who, who has fellow tutors, Matt, 50 and Sadie Single, 42, who are married, have been to anti-vaccine protests, while Mrs. Single has been pictured with conspiracist David Icke. Well, so, there, there's um, a, that's a, that's, that is a disgraceful thing to do. I mean, how dare she? <laughs> I know, I know, how dare she? So um, at this point, I hadn't met Danny uh, or any of the Alphas, but it, um, I was incredibly touched 
that they were donating funds from the uh, sale of their merchandise uh, to the Hope Project. Um, and it wasn't until we at Hope had had the visit from the Ofsted unregistered schools team that uh, Matt had phoned Danny and said, uh, would you come up and have, have a look at the site and just, just kind of be there if we need you. So Danny and uh, five of the uh, alpha men assemble, both men and women came to visit. And um, while he was there, Danny kind of said, you need a bit of help here, don't you? you know, noticing that bits are falling off of buildings and yeah it's, it's it wasn't the best site you know there's still quite a lot to do um he said okay do you know what i'm going to do i'm going to organize um and get this place a team and get this place sorted for you um not only did he do that he actually project managed the whole weekend uh of which we had 13 different zones um, so we had, yeah, one of the most uplifting and magical weekends I think I've ever experienced. I was close to tears and actually did cry most of the time. Um, it was either that or I was grinning like the Cheshire cat, to be honest. Um, they travelled from all over the country, a hundred people, uh, in, on the Friday, most of them, during that snow. It was freezing cold the whole weekend, apart from on the Saturday and the Sunday during the day when we had the sunshine, which was absolutely beautiful, an absolute gift from the universe for us. Uh, but it was it was hitting, I think, about minus five in the evenings, and they were sleeping in tents. This were they, they were families, so it wasn't just uh, men. There were women and children as well um, who all came along. It was like our very own uh, DIY SOS. Uh, and the, we had builders, electricians, plumbers, people painting. We had um, the mammoth task of feeding everyone. So everyone chipped in, even the children were chipping in with, uh, with making sure that everyone was fed and watered. Um, but yeah, some of them drove six hours. So I dread to think what the cost of petrol would have been. Everything they did was completely free. They um, donated a thousand pounds worth of new flooring. We had a digger on site. Um, they donated a hot water system for us in the kitchen so we can have um, immediate hot water. Um, and then in the evening on the Saturday, we had a beautiful barbecue and the band Victorious, an awake band from Brighton, um, came and played for us. Um, we had Mad Mix, I believe you've played one of his songs, Killer Killer COVID on the show. He was there the whole day um, helping out. And um, yeah, he sang his song. I sang uh, Vaccine. Um, and they literally got up at the crack of dawn and worked both Saturday and Sunday completely for free. Um, it was so hugely successful and enjoyable. They actually want to come back and do more. They want to finish off the things they didn't get to finish off. They want a brand new list from us um, of more jobs. and. Yeah, I, I just think it, it, it just restores your faith in humanity, really. Yeah, this, that what this they've is, done, uh, that selfless deed. This is how it should work. They have really. done. This is how it should work. And and, and it's it's such a, a lovely report from you, but it, because it, it shows that the the smear campaign that the mayor was trying to run, which is saying, well, you know, it's a it's a it's an ex-soldier, so it's it's militaristic training, or oh, it's the BNP, or oh, it's the far right. Um 
none of none of this has any basis in reality, and what you're showing there is the reality, and it's it's lovely to see. Well, let's just put the the final image on screen here with you all together. Yeah, uh, and uh, well, you can see uh, David. You can see all the Nazi regalia that's that's there, can't you? <laughs> and uh, you know, so the the Daily Mail, yeah, the Daily Mail really needs to be ashamed of itself, right? Well, <laughs> that perhaps is an appropriate. Uh, moment to, to mention online safety bill, which of course uh, will make sure that the Daily Mail's narratives uh, get protection uh, on social media and so on. Uh, and just to brief, briefly mention that there was a hearing of the Digital Culture Media and Sports Select Committee uh, last week. And uh, well, the wonderful Michael Grade uh, has been confirmed as the uh, new chairman of Ofcom that will be uh, regulating the internet. Uh, he'll get paid £142,500 for three days per week. Uh, that's not a bad salary if you can get it. Uh, and just as a quick reminder, of course, he was uh, he's ex-BBC, uh, also ex-ITV, uh, chairman of, uh, non-executive chairman of Pinewood and Shepherd and Film Studios, uh, and also been involved in supermarket chains and so on. But he's a Tory, a Tory peer at the moment. Uh, but uh, once he moves into this role uh, on the 1st of May, he will suddenly change David from being a Tory peer to being a crossbench peer and automatically his toriness just drops off. He'll be entirely independent. Yes, entirely independent. And of course, he won't have any co former BBC colleagues uh, working at Ofcom's board either. Apart from all of them. Apart from all of them, yes, indeed. Okay, uh, David, I, I've, I've included this next story uh, just to put a smile on your face. Um, this is the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Uh, and well, they seem to be admitting now that the activities of the Federal Reserve Bank have caused the inflation in the United States. Um, so they're saying that, uh, well, they're saying that inflation rates in the US and other developed economies uh, have uh, closely uh, tracked each other historically, but that suddenly the United States is moving ahead in terms of, uh, of inflation uh, and that uh, a combination of the 0% interest rates from the Federal Reserve quantitative easing uh, and support of uh, trillions of federal government spending uh, have added 3% over and above that tracking of uh, other inflation targets around the world uh, and that that has, uh, that has caused the inflation. So uh, there are many people asking questions about why they've suddenly made this admission um, and perhaps they're setting things up for uh, actually ramping up interest rates in the United States faster than maybe people might expect. Uh, but it is an interesting admission, nonetheless. It is. It is uh, how they how they actually recover from the situation. Having got an entire economy now hooked on on uh, money printing, uh, zero interest rates, and uh, government bailouts, how you actually move from that without a horrendous recession, um, which they can't take politically. I don't know. I think ultimately they've only got one. Uh, the one we got one tool, and that's money printing. Yes. And, uh, well, speaking of irrationality, uh, let's very briefly mention uh, the UK Hydrogen Export Capability Guide, because apparently uh, this this has just been pushed out by the, although it was published in October last year, it's just been published uh, pushed out on Twitter by the uh, Department for International Trade and also by the by Liz Truss, uh, because, you know, it's all part of Great, uh, Great Britain and so on, the Great... Uh, uh, reset? Well, yes, possibly. But anyway, uh, UK Hydrogen Export Capability Guide published in October 2021. And apparently we are the, we're set to become a global hydrogen leader uh, in the UK. 
uh, because we have so much gas uh, that we can produce so much hydrogen uh, and then we can export it, David. We don't need it for ourselves. Um, so we've got strong hydrogen foundations. Uh, we've got uh, experience in heavy industry and we can, we're already producing 27 terawatt hours of hydrogen equivalent, um, and, but we've got lots of oil and gas and so on. And so we've developed a hydrogen strategy uh, we're able to produce blue hydrogen straight away. This is hydrogen produced from natural gas. Uh, and we are increasingly capable of producing green hydrogen, which is hydrogen which is produced from tur wind turbines, via wind turbines and so on, and doesn't uh, produce any carbon dioxide. But as well as that, because we have uh, such a fantastic geological setup in the UK, uh, it's great for uh, capturing uh, hydrogen and storing it in underground caverns and, and so on. Uh, and so that makes us a perfect place to start exporting from uh, because we don't need it ourselves. But, but we, we are trying to get away from fossil fuels and there's an enormous energy gap. We, surely they must realise that something's got to fill it. Well, the point is that uh, they're talking about uh, uh, switching off gas boilers for heating in domestic homes. So that has to be replaced with something. And they're talking about hydrogen-based boilers instead. They're, going to, they're switching off uh, our ability to run uh, petrol and diesel cars, yeah. uh, and that has to be replaced with electricity. But that electricity is going to be, well, what, what Ofgem has already said is that uh, as we stop producing, as the refineries stop producing uh, gas and electricity, uh, gas and, uh, sorry, petrol and diesel for cars, they'll require less electricity to run those refineries, and that electricity can be diverted into charging points. So there's no requirement for a net increase in electricity. But now we've got a uh, hydrogen economy coming along. Uh, so are we replacing the, the uh, petrol and diesel economy with the hydrogen economy? Uh, the, the, the numbers don't add up. The, num the numbers don't add up. At least the hydrogen as a technology has the prospect of being possible, whereas the, the battery-powered uh, and electricity-powered uh, technology just doesn't, it doesn't stack up. We're talking about uh, having to uh, um, mine more material than we've ever mined in the history of mankind every year mm. in order to generate uh, the the infrastructure that they're talking about to to run cars and electric vehicles for everyone. It's not viable. Hydrogen at least does have the, have a viability about it. But of course, why are we doing this? We're doing it because of the global warming scam. It's not been done out of need. It's been done out of political chicanery and uh, fake science. Indeed. Uh, okay, let's move quickly on to uh, ferries. Yes, we covered ferries in depth last week. Just want to just touch base on this story again. A lot's happened in the last week. Um, uh, the, the, the story was one of um, multiple government errors and incompetence that produced, well, uh, one rusting ferry, one incomplete ferry, and a bill which is going to be somewhere north of 300 million instead of the advertised 97 million or the much smaller amount that you could have actually had serviceable ferries for if you'd gone a different route. Here we see the National saying, well, don't worry, it's all going to be world class. Uh, let's have some um, waving some salt tires and everything will be fine. So they're not reporting the truth. Um, but uh, other people are. So uh, we're going to uh, the Herald here. Uh, Peter, sorry, Derek Mackay, former uh, minister responsible for transport, he was getting thrown under the bus by Nicola Sturgeon, even though he transpired he was on holiday at the time. Well, he now wants to set the record straight at Holyrood. Um, somewhat ironic, given the fact they had to leave Holyrood because 
He's, uh, he was making uh, inappropriate uh, text messages to a schoolboy, but he wants to set the record straight. He wants to come into Hollywood, Hollywood to do it as well. So he's willing to go on the record as to what actually happened. Uh, he said that I'm willing to cooperate with the parliamentary committee and do my best to answer any questions they may have. To do so as comprehensively as possible, I will seek access to the necessary papers and information that I'm entitled to as a former government minister. That sounds like a threat to me, but there we go. Um, as the documents also confirm the involvement of Deputy First Minister John Swinney uh, in the affair, revealing that he approved the financial implications of the contract award prior to announcement by the First Minister. Um, so uh, moving on from this, we have, oh, we have a, we have a redacted contract for a ferry. And, and, and the redaction, as is often the case in Scottish government, redaction is not very good. And they've missed certain parts of the signature. Does that look like John Swinney's signature, perhaps? It might. It might be. So it may be that John Swinney, Deputy First Minister, actually signed off on this personally. That would be quite interesting and difficult. So um, Derek Mackay goes on that he's, he's been victimised over the whole affair. He's happy to appear, uh, set the record straight. He says that... <laughs> That, there was, uh, that he was the fourth minister in the pecking order around these ferries as junior transport minister. And those dealing with, with this above him were Nicola Sturgeon, John Swinney, and Keith Brown. Anyone who knows anything about the way these processes work knows that anything of this size would never have happened without prior approval at the highest levels, which I'm sure is correct. Coincidentally, John Swinney um, and Keith Brown both got COVID the day that that was announced, ah. um, which is, Pretty. which is, I'm sure, entirely legitimate. Here we see John Swinney tweeting, uh, sorry, John Swinney tweeting about his COVID. He said, after years of avoiding COVID-19, I tested positive. And then Keith Brown comes back and be safe, John. I'm positive too. Um, so there we go. They're it's both that keeps on giving, isn't it? They're both out of commission, and it's just fortuitous that it happened to be then. Now, uh, if you think uh, that um, uh, Michael Grade's £147,000 for a year for three-day week is high, we can do better than that in Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon's defended the pay of the shipyard boss, who was getting £3,000 a day, Mr Hare, for failing to turn the shipyard around. Um, now, Nicola went on at some length about this. It, it was... Uh, it was um, uh, uh, entirely reasonable. She said these decisions were taken in line with proper processes. I don't set the market rate for what people are paid. Mr. Sarwar said the response is a Scottish Labour leader, uh, said the response was shocking and out of touch when people were facing a cost of living crisis. Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi, he asked. Uh, government advisors actually suggested Tim Hare needed a decent pay package, so life wasn't, and I quote, unnecessarily painful for him while he swapped Hampshire for Port Glasgow. Uh -huh. So there's, there's, there's a sneer in all of that from the uh, well-heeled uh, civil service in, in Edinburgh. Uh, when Mr Hare left post uh, in February 2022, uh, he had said... Um, he, he, sorry, he said it was he had implemented a series of important changes uh, and systems and controls and built an experienced and skilled team to strengthen the business and establish a solid footing for growth. Finance Secretary Kate Forbes also paid tribute to Mr Hare, saying he had worked tirelessly to turn Ferguson's around by ensuring the yard is fit for purpose. 
is working to complete the vessels and will win future contracts. Why is he going if he's so good? I, I don't understand this. Tim Hare uh, left his, uh, see, added Tim Hare and his team have left Ferguson's on that long-term path towards a sustainable future. Long-term path of towards? Long-term path. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, sorry, let's just carry on from that. So we have here um, uh, Kate Forbes um, being interviewed. So she thinks this, this man who we paid um, three million pounds to over two years to fail to turn the shipyard around and fail to build the ships is, is, a, really, is a really sound deal for the government. Uh, so here, here we see her being interviewed and she's explaining what um, collective responsibility means. Well, collective responsibility means that I'm answering your questions seven years after the decision was made as a member of the government, despite not being elected at the time. That's what collective responsibility is. Is that means. all, though? But it well, also okay, thank you for doing that. But is that all it is? £240 million of public money? Is that all the responsibility? Is that the only consequence? No, and I, and I go back to where I started, which is that the cost overruns, the, the, the delays to these ferries, and the impact on island communities is not acceptable. Nobody is We understand that. I, what I'm trying to get at here is, we, we can, these are words, and I accept that you're saying that, but what does it mean? Who's, where is the responsibility here? What are the consequences of this situation? Learning lessons is vital. Uh, taking responsibility for mistakes that have been made and ultimately trying to put it right. So there we go. We're going to learn lessons. Um, now, one of the things Mike's just pointing out that we didn't manage to get in because there's so many things happened in this, uh, uh, this ferry story last week is they actually had to phone the fire brigade because they set one of the ferries on fire, uh, which was a little unfortunate. Although, to be fair, welders set everything on fire, so it was probably a fairly routine uh, occurrence. But they had to phone the fire brigade in this case. Uh, we've got here also um, a... a, a a blog uh, by Ian Lawson. Now he's he's describing here uh, a letter that went into the Scottish government from uh, a Scottish uh, uh, gentleman called uh, Dr. Ballantyne, who is an expert in the design and the construction and the operation of ferries. And he was saying that they were going the Scottish government was going the the, the, the wrong way about this, um, and uh, he was. Um, uh, outlining another way forward. And of course, um, he didn't get a positive response from the government. In fact, he didn't even get a reply. Um, here's a little extract from the, uh, from the letter. It was to Kate Forbes, who we just saw there. Uh, and he concluded, as a, uh, after going through a whole series of very specific things about what the ferry should have been, how much it should cost, how much it should cost to operate, he concluded, as a proud Scot, it distresses me that Scotland's maritime capability has been reduced to such a shadow of its former standing. I've offered to make a contribution to uh, reinstating Scotland as a world-class ship designing, building and operating nation, and would be happy to meet with you and such others as may be appropriate to discuss how this might be achieved. And he included his phone number, and she never phoned. Uh, just to prove that it's not all bad in the Clyde, here we go, BAE Systems are recruiting 400 workers for Glasgow Shipyards, as the old Govan Shipyard, um, uh, to look after the Type 26 uh, Navy frigate contract. So there is the ability in Scotland, you see here in, in Dr. Ballantyne, there is the, the drive and the initiative, but what's uh, causing the failure at every turn is, uh, is the Scottish Government. Yes. 
Okay, well, look, uh, we're, we're just about out of time, David. So uh, we've got a couple of uh, final, final images here. Uh, we have here, uh, this is Bob's Cartoons, who features quite often on the final slides. Uh, I heart Big Pharma, and it's a, it's, a, it's a failing and grossly oversized heart because this is one of the symptoms of uh, the adverse reactions to the COVID-19 vaccination. Yes, and uh, finally... And finally, back to uh, the Ukraine and Russia uh, situation, and we have here uh, America comforted by a, a reassuring Europe is, is, is saying, I'm giving you 6,000 sanctions and uh, a very smug looking Russian cat just responds, <laughs> gas for rubles. Yes. Uh, Brian, any final thoughts? Uh, well, I'm going to say it was it was absolutely lovely to to have that positive section in the news of people getting on and doing things and making it happen. And I totally agree with your comment that the Daily Mail, uh, what an utter disgrace to try and uh, accuse people of being something that clearly they're not in that way. So uh, we're seeing some really um, horrific things happening in government. Uh, what do we need people to do? We need people to stand up and be counted. That involves writing letters and pressing their MPs and speaking out. But it also means, yes, people need to start coming together to help themselves. So I'm going to say thank you, Katie Joe, for that report. OK, thank you, Brian. OK, well, look, we're, we're out of time. So uh, we'll be back uh, in a few minutes on the main live stream uh, if you are a member uh, for some extra. Uh, and otherwise, we'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Wednesday. Uh, we'll see you then. Thanks for joining us.